Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. And today is Book Report Day. Ew, that sounds so <laughs> gross. Who likes book reports? I, I like books. Yeah, but a book report? Okay, sorry. Okay, maybe, maybe can we call it book club? Okay, yes. Yeah. Salem, <laughs> Salem the Podcast Book Club. I'm down with that. Okay, better than book report? Yes. Because that's like what book club is. It's like a joint. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to like write a paper. Yeah, well, we didn't have to write papers for this no, one. thank goodness. I came with notes, but. Yeah, I've got, I've got, no, I've got some highlights. This is definitely not high school. Yes. But uh, it does kind of feel like well, it. for you. <laughs> uh, so we are going to be rounding out our whole Gables, Emerton, Hawthorne, etc., uh, by giving our personal reviews of two of Hawthorne's uh, more prominent piece of literary work, I have covered, will cover the House of Seven Gables, and Sarah has the Scarlet Letter. Dun dun dun! Definitely two of his most famous works, and I'd say both of them have probably the most ties to Salem. Yeah. we could argue. Oh, for sure. So this is why we're covering them today. Well, other than like some of his short stories and poems, right? Right, but, but like, like big. Yeah. Yeah. But before we jump into our report, let's cover some quick uh, tour time. I don't know if I have a tour time. I had some great tours. Hold on. I actually wrote it down this time. Ah, you're one up on me. Yes. Last time I had forgotten my notebook at home. Yes. I actually started writing stuff down in a notebook. Like when you had a good tour, when you had a fun tour. uh Uh-huh. Because I kept forgetting everything. Okay. So let me see what I got in my list here. Wow. I have... Clearly come unprepared. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I just wanted to thank whoever this kind soul was. I was at the Bewitch statue giving a tour, and this woman and her little human, probably around three years old, maybe even younger. Troglodytish. Troglodytish. They stopped, and the mother got her child to say in unison with her, we love Salem the podcast. It was adorable. Wow. Adorable. So whoever you were, thank you. Thanks. I also chatted with Kelly Homan from Reds recently. Yeah, we, we, uh, for those of you who don't know, we interviewed her two months ago. Yeah, it's been a bit, been a little while. Yeah. Great interview. Obviously one of our favorite places in town uh-huh. and a favorite of locals and tourists alike. Apparently several people have said to her, are you from the podcast? Were you interviewed on the podcast? Because they recognize her voice. So That's awesome. Thank you guys for making people just feel seen and appreciated. She was really excited about that. Love that. Oh, and then this actually is related to today's content. Bora messaged us, Brian, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, he has in his possession original paintings by Ida Upton. As in the Ida Upton who lived in the House of Seven Gables and was making the little hand-painted mm-hmm. teacups mm-hmm. with the witch on them. He just, I mean, I have, why does he, what child did he have to sacrifice to acquire <laughs> those? Right? I was like, are you kidding me? What spell did the witch perform to acquire the original art? So they were, according to him, brought down from the attic in Upton's grand niece's home. They were painted around 1925. First one is of the witch house before the renovation. So obviously it doesn't look Mm -hmm. like it is today. And then the other is a home off of Mark. The second one is a home in Marblehead. 
Isn't that wild? That's, so That's pretty cool. Yeah, he's got two paintings from Ida Upton. I bet there's a lot of people out there who have like... Something. Cool Salem stuff. Random related Salem... Yeah. Memorabilia. Yeah. Let us know. I don't know. We could do a whole episode on it. Well, like you're, you're friends with the teacup. That his uh, great aunt went and retrieved after the, the fire. fire. Right? Like I'm sure there's... And now, Brian, I know, I mean, I have... A spoon. I have some uh, uh, postcards and memorabilia. I have an old guidebook from Salem. I have a couple old books as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's probably if there if you're out there if you're local, uh, if you're not local, if you just have a cool Salem artifact, let us know. We'll talk about it. Heck yeah! Curiosities of Salem. Ooh. I like that. But, but. yeah. That that's all I got for you. Yeah, I I don't think I had anything in particular. I had great tours, hand out more nudes, had a lot of fun. Uh, it was a good weekend. So, oh, and uh, speaking of nudes, maybe we let them in on our uh, little announcement. Da da da! New merch. Woo! That was horrible. I don't know what button that is. Oh, yeah. That was so bad. I love it. Yeah, uh, we got some new merch coming out for you guys. Uh, uh, So obviously I have the uh, nude stickers in my briefcase, but we we will be making some merch available online. Got mugs, shirts, Sweatshirts, t-shirts, stickers. We also have some penguin stuff up there officially, anatomically incorrect penguin stuff. So that'll be pretty cool. Uh, And you can also still get all the normal merch uh, the ectoplasm, skull moss, and all of our OG logo stuff. Uh, love it when you guys turn up on tour with the merch. That's pretty cool. It's so um, fun. So uh, remember I told you, uh, listener Samantha bumped into them in the town hall at the Moon Market meeting? I think so. Okay, okay. She recognized my voice. Yes. Came over and said hi. Then she was on tour with her boyfriend later that week. Uh-huh. She was wearing the Tunnel Hunter shirt. Oh, yes, you did mention this. Okay, and then her boy, she had to, they overheard another tour talking about tunnels, and she had to, like, explain to her boyfriend that the tunnel issue and the joke and the shirt and the whole thing. So That's great. Yeah. Love it when you guys show up with merch. How fitting that you are wearing the Tunnel Hunters. I would just slowly walk by and kind of just like, you know, (laughs) fix my shirt a little bit. Like, hmm, Mm. tell me about those tunnels. So who said this? Who said this? I can't remember who told me to do this recently. No, I'm not going to say this in case I decide to do it. Nah, screw it, whatever. Uh, that we should go to some of the stops that they stop at and use chalk on the ground and be like, don't listen. Tunnel entrance. No, 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 oh. no, no. Be like, <laughs> there are no tunnels. Don't listen to your tour guide. Oh my God, that's really, that's kind of messed up. Be like, they're lying to you. There are no tunnels. They don't know what they're talking about. That is so intense. <laughs> that's so intense. Actually, you know what we should do? We should do that in the middle of the night. That way when people wake up, because it's not just going to, that would not just affect tour guides in town but i think they would kind of like get the attention of everybody but like it's absurd public notice there are no tunnels don't listen if your tour guide is telling you they're tunnels they're lying to you 
Uh, but then, of course, that's it, so aggressive, I, right? But then, of course, it could become a whole like conspiracy thing that there's actually tunnels, and they're just trying to hide the fact. Because I think remember, like the tunnels thing, like someone claimed that like City Hall was denying that there were tunnels because they wouldn't let people down the basements of buildings and stuff. <laughs> And so you're like, that's not, it's just, it's a safety. And you can't just go exploring random basements. Right. But yeah, yeah. I can't remember who told me to do that. It was like, just go around with chalk. And you're like, if these people are lying to their, the people on tour, just write it on the sidewalk. Don't interrupt them. And then the people will be standing there. And I'm like, oh my God. That's so, I, again, very aggressive. Yeah. I thought you were going in the direction of drawing like a solid circle. And be like tunnel entrance. Tun- tunnel entrance here. Okay, that's also Which would pretty funny. also be hilarious yeah. if people woke, woke up to that. Either one would be good. I'm going to go buy some chalk after this. So if anyone sees uh, either of these things in the street, it was neither Sarah nor myself. Uh, we had nothing to do with it. We are innocent. We are innocent uh, until proven guilty. And even then we are still innocent. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yes, go check out the website, salemthepodcast.com. Uh, you can check out our merch store, uh, pick up some fun uh, new merch if you want uh, some nudes, if you want some penguins. We've got all that for you guys. And we're also going to be dropping some children's t-shirts. Mm. Uh, there was a special request after our most recent episode on Nathaniel Hawthorne. Someone would like to see a t-shirt that says small troglodyte. An autumnal rose. So those will be up there as well. So if you find that your child is either one, either a troglodyte or a rose. I uh, I know a small child who's definitely a little troglodyte. <laughs> she's turning she's turning uh, two uh, next Tuesday. And uh, I, I feel like that troglodyte shirt is very appropriate for that little child. Before we move into Patreon shoutouts, we got one last little piece of news to share. We are going to be doing another live show. You asked and we answered. Once again, this will be in downtown Salem. Mm -hmm. On a Tuesday. It better be on a Tuesday because that's what we said. I know. I know that. I'm just checking the date. Uh, The 11th. Yes. It will be on July 11th. Tuesday. Tuesday. It will be at... Should, oh. we, should we tell them where it's going to be? No, maybe we keep that a secret. Let's keep that a secret. Okay. Till next week. Till next week. Okay. Okay. Should we tell them what it's going to be about? Let's keep that a secret too. Okay. Let's keep it all a secret. Let's just, just tell, tell the, them. Okay, so this is like the teaser. This is, is the it, teaser. This is like the trail, the teaser trailer before the actual teaser trailer. Yes. That the movie theaters put out that everyone gets annoyed that they're doing it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So at the beginning of next week's episode, because it will be an interview, we'll drop in a little note and give you some more details on the event. But yes, we are going to be doing our second ever live show in July, Mm -hmm. but that's all we're saying. That's that's all Sarah's letting me say. Yep. She's not letting me say anymore. We'll save it for next episode. Not allowed to tell you where or what, uh, but... Uh, mark out your calendars. Next live show, July 11th, downtown Salem, in a very historical building. About very historical stuff. Yes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and on to Patreon shoutouts. What up, patrons? Our first thank you goes to Krusky51. Or is it Kruski51? Thank you, Kruski51. Uh, and next on the list... We have Jessica. Just Jessica. 
Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. A big thank you to Jocelyn Durenberger. Jocelyn. Reminds me of a knight's tale. That's literally what I was <laughs> Ah, Heath Ledger. Oh. So thank you to our patrons. We appreciate all of you. All right, on with the show. Who wants to go first? Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? That makes sense for me to go first. It because was written first? It was written okay. first, yeah. So again, we're doing our little, what did we decide to call it? Not a book report, book, book club. club. Yeah. Welcome to Salem the Podcast Book Club. Today, Where? we are discussing The Scarlet Letter and a house is The House of the Seven Gables. I almost forgot that second the. I forgot like both thes. Right? Can we just like cut the thes out? You know, <laughs> we can cut out every word but gables. Uh, the gables. The gables. Yeah. You If you said the gables, people yeah, know, yeah. know, know you're what like, you're oh, talking about. Just go past the gables. Like, going down to the gables. Like, toward the gables. So Sarah, tell me about a scarlet letter. The scarlet letter. I will I... be grading you, by the way. Oh, <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> Although we should give our ratings yes. out of 13 witch hats by the end of this. So obviously, The Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, it is classified as a gothic romance. Um, in fact, a romance is technically the subtitle to it, which I have never really seen before. But The Scarlet Letter, a, rom- a romance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, Hawthorne actually considered this, he, he coined the term, psychological romance was that like a psychological thriller similar okay i guess you're you're on the right track it is quote a narrative genre that emphasizes interior characters characterization and motivation to explore the spiritual emotional and mental lives of the characters okay He started writing this book in September of 1849 and finished in February the following year. So only a couple months. So his wife, Sophia, actually wrote to her mother that he was often with his pen nine hours a day during that time. So just completely engrossed in this writing. There's a couple explanations for this. One... He had just lost his job at the customs house. So we did talk about that briefly in our previous episode. With the changeover in the administration in Washington, he was just kind of booted out. So he no longer holds his position. He's a little spiteful towards the administration, the government, and Salem in general well, I mean, there's because a lot. of that. Zachary Taylor was a shithead. Uh, so... I, th- maybe this is the only good thing that came out of his administration. The Scarlet Letter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if, I mean, if Nathaniel Hawthorne never lost his job, we probably would have not gotten these two monumentous works to mm-hmm. follow because House Seven Gables comes out shortly like thereafter. A year later. He had also recently lost his mother during the time of writing. So she was 69 at the time of her death. Um, it happened very fast. She was ill. And Hawthorne referred to this era of his life as the darkest hour I have ever lived. Yeah. So very much written, surrounded by this grief. And remember from last week's episode, right? Hawthorne was last week. He lost his father at a... Very early age, at age four. Four, yeah. Four years old. So his father wasn't around, so his mother played a huge role in his life, and now he has lost her as well. Yep. The evening Hawthorne read his last chapter to Sophia, 
a big reminder, guys. Sophia Peabody is his wife. She went to bed with a headache. <laughs> and Hawthorne took this as a sign of the book's future success. Because <laughs> it made her think. Oh, okay. She couldn't shake it. Quite funny, right? Sure. I mean, yes. Um, okay. Just, you know, perplexing. If someone's like, I read your book. And, and I got a headache. <laughs> and I got a headache. I wouldn't take that as a positive sign. But this is also Hawthorne. So, like, now is, is, he's, you know, probably headaches and moody and grumpy. And his wife's going to bed, like, with the same demeanor he always has. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And if you are interested in seeing the location in which he wrote this book, you can actually still do that. He was in Salem at the time of writing. He was living at the Peter Edgerly House, which currently sits at 14 Mall Street, um, kind of between the Common and Bridge Street, very close, right downtown. I have been meaning to get down there to see if they have a plaque. I know they have a house plaque. I just don't know what it says. Sorry, where? 14 Mall Street. M-A-L-L? Mm -hmm. Okay, never mind. Did you find it? <clears throat> Don't worry about it. One of the main characters in uh, House of Seven Gables is is Maul. M-A-U-L-E. Mm. -E. Oh. <clears throat> and, and you said Maul Street, and Maul Street is referenced in the Gables. Oh. And I was like, wait, what? But it's But is Maul Street also M-A-U-L, or is it M-A-L-L, -L, and then there's a character called Maul? No, no, no. So Maul, M-A-U-L-E. Maul, the character, and the street is named after Maul, the character, the, the character okay. in the Gables. Huh. But you see he's living on Maul Street, and all of a sudden I was like, wait, what? That's cool. But it's M-A-L-L. -L. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It may have, it may have played into it, <clears throat> maybe. But yeah, we'll have to get down there and see if they have any notation on that plaque. And if they but don't. Can you imagine living in the house where Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter? I'd put a big Scarlet Letter in the window. Oh, that's a good or idea. On the door, like like a like a. Oh, I would get one of those lights. I would get a projection light well, and just say, project like, like, A like a nice onto the side of the house. Glass. Like you know, you Ooh. have like nice front doors with like a red A in the front door. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Ho host Friday night parties. Jeffrey, buy that house. <laughs> <laughs> I can't buy all the houses, Sarah. So honestly, if you come to Salem, you can see quite a bit of. Places mm -hmm. tied to Hawthorne. House Seven Gables, obviously. His birthplace, which sits on the campus of the House Seven Gables. And then you can pop right past the common and see where he wrote the Scarlet Letter. So this work was first published in the spring of 1850. As I said, it only took him a couple months to write. Published by Tickner and Fields. The first edition included 2,500 copies and sold out within 10 days. I actually found a first edition copy online for $22,500. I'd that, rather buy the book than the house. That's signed, though. That is signed by Nathaniel Hawthorne, first edition. I would well. Are you tempted? I don't have to. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> tour, tour business isn't that good. Um, unsigned, though, you can get it for about $12,500. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, like... Still, but I, I I was surprised. First edition, Scarlet Letter, yeah. And there's there's only, only twenty five hundred copies yeah. printed, not still in existence. There's probably oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, a smidgen of that left. 
So originally published in 1850 and has yet to go out of print more than 170 years later. It is still being read in classrooms around the country. The Scarlet Letter has proved timeless. I wonder who gets that money. Probably just the Probably. publishing company, whoever just pu- publishes the book. Oh, yeah, because doesn't it go? It goes into public domain yeah. 70 years after the death of the author. I think so. So then, and so any, you could open a publishing house and publish the Scarlet Letter. Tell me more. Publishing law. We'll look into that one day. Doubtful. The Observer ranked it 20th on the list of 100 greatest novels of all time. It is also on the list of 100 best classics by the Times. It is considered pretty much a masterpiece of American literature, and critics have even called it the perfect book. Well, now I'm curious. When's the last time you read The Scarlet Letter? 25 years ago. Really? Okay. So I definitely read this in school, like many of us do. Just like The Crucible, uh-huh. just like, you know, I don't think we ever touched The House of Seven Gables, but it, it is one of those staples in high school English class. And man, I give credit to us at that age because this was hard. Well, it's like, I think I was mentioning this to you the other day. It's like when there is not a better time to teach so many of these seminal pieces of literature and works understanding when you're in, than when you're like in, in high school, right? Because, like, the way your brain works? No, just like... And how, like, spongy you are? We're all in school. Everyone's in school. Every person goes through high school. So you can introduce these things, and and everyone has a better understanding of culture and literature, right? So we are introducing that at a period in time where we are fundamental growth, and we're all in this... You can't do a network. 30 years old. And it, it was everyone's going to be required to go take a literature course. Right. So it's how you sustain these things within, like, the collective understanding yeah. of world and American literature. But there is such a lack of understanding from 16-year-olds. I remember I mentioned this. I didn't like Shakespeare in high school. I was like, this is dumb. This is stupid. I don't get it. Same. And... I remember like my my English teacher being like, okay, everyone read out loud. And I'm like, <laughs> and she was great, to be fair. Um, actually, let me let me let me tell you my, my favorite thing about her, because I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, she, uh, so this isn't a book report, but if this was a book report that we had to write for Miss Kimpton, and if anyone would ask, how long does it have to be, right? Because that's always yeah, yeah. the question, how long? Okay, this was her answer, by the way. So we're as long as it needs to be. Hold on, Uh, we're in high school. She was old. I don't know. She probably wasn't that. Maybe in her fifties, early sixties. She would tell us that a good essay needs to be the same length as a woman's skirt. What? Long enough to cover the subject, and short enough to be interesting. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I do like that. That has stuck with me now for the better part of two decades. My God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, my notes are like four <laughs> page, three page, three a little over three pages. Long enough to cover the subject, short enough to be interesting. My gosh, what was her name? Miss Kimpton. Thank you, Miss Kimpton, for that one. <laughs> but I still don't think that you get a better understanding of these things as an adult. You do, but I think it is good that they introduce yeah. them because you are so spongy at that mm-hmm. time in your life. And again, you can share it. It's a shared experience and you can talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to, right? 
so assignments you, and you learn more reports but you under if i'd recommend going back and rereading or revisiting a lot of things i didn't like to kill a mockingbird for like decades i hated that book. i don't know if i would ever go back and reread this as an adult even as an adult okay i wanted to throw it off my porch <laughs> who's not a fan so for those who have not read the scarlet letter just a very brief synopsis It is set in 17th century puritanical Boston. Although it's set in Boston, it definitely gives like a Salem vibe. It technically starts, I think, in 1642, but the book itself covers uh, about a decade worth of time. There are several main characters, um, and the principal character of them all is Hester Prynne. I think we all know that name. Whether or not you know where it's from. You've probably come across it yeah. in some capacity. So the story revolves around her, a young woman who is condemned for committing adultery and is forced to wear a scarlet letter A on her chest as a symbol of her shame. Which, you know, that's what they did back then. If you were in trouble for adultery, for an fornication, burglary, anything, you are going to wear your punishment. I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, it would be good to know for like sex offenders and stuff. Like, yeah, absolutely. But also like some more petty crimes. Like shoplifting and stuff? Like burglary, shoplifting, you know, armed robbery. Imagine if you had to wear a little badge that said, you know, X date, I committed armed robbery. So are you arguing for this practice? Public shame isn't a good thing. I don't think it's like a healthy thing, but I think it would, people don't like to, people to know their secrets, right? You walk around Uh under the, imagine every store you went into, every shopkeeper you went into, every person you saw online, they'd see you and know, and that, I, you, I think you'd be far less inclined. If my ex was wearing a badge that said abusive gaslighter on it, like I probably would have walked away. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I still don't think it's the, I mean, genuinely, Jeff, maybe you should read this book again because <laughs> like, I think the point is to not do this to other people um, and that the practice is puritanical and outdated, but I can see where you're coming from. What would your letter be? (laughs) It's the same one. Uh, (laughs) Oh, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's like, oh, shit, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, it's the same one. Um, But I I think, anyway, sorry. Yeah, continue. No, what were you going to say? The the, uh, sort of slut shaming and misogyny in that I, I think is a better message than the crime itself. Right. So I I don't think so. Like you mean like the way that the society perceives her and the situation and the way that they act towards her, that's more of the point than the actual punishment. And yeah, because like you have a lot of things like TikTok, right? Like around and find out. Yeah. Right. You see people, Karen's you're, you're bullying people and, and that, and now you've been publicly outed. Mm-hmm. Right, as as committing these not necessarily crimes, but moral or social transactions, and people get fired from their jobs, they get held accountable. So when 
your behave when you are held accountable. Well, now that you frame it that way, <laughs> when you are held accountable for your behavior, and like you can just wipe your resume. Like no one needs to know I got arrested. No one needs to know that I I did X. No one needs to know that I whatever the case may be. And you know you can go up and down the list of how grieve it, how uh, grave crimes should or shouldn't be, but public uh, accountability deters criminal behavior. So back to the story. Hester Prynne is pregnant, but not by her husband. So this is where the adultery comes in. She had come to the colony alone. It's presumed that her husband, Roger Chillingworth, was lost at sea, um, but she does conceive a baby. And he has not been around for more than nine months. So the town can deduce that she has had the baby out of wedlock. So while Hester has to deal with this shame publicly and wear that A affixed to her clothing, her lover was sitting at pretty much the top of the society as a reverend. The Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. He is the one that is the father and he struggles with guilt and inner torment throughout the entirety of the book while he tries to maintain his respected position in the Puritan community. He should have been wearing the A too. Yes, he should. So the story kind of opens with her being brought up onto the scaffold in front of the entire town, receiving her punishment, and having to wear that A after serving time in prison. Was that a, was that a thing? Affixing. So usually there's a thought that this came from um, a story about people getting branded with right, the, right. the letters. Because I know branding was real, right? Yes. Uh, and I know the having to wear your crimes, you know, at least in the stockade, you, you, you wore that, whatever you, they called it. Um, and sometimes for a period of time afterwards, but I'm not sure. I have not seen any type of historical references to this practice actually being done. In fact, I saw something that talked about how Hawthorne was inspired by the physical branding. Okay, okay. Um, and there was even a, I feel like there's like a lot of, cons- I don't know if conspiracy theories are the right term to use for this, but like people are always searching for inner meanings throughout mm-hmm. Hawthorne's work and someone has tried to make the claim that his inspiration for the actual title itself Scarlet Letter comes from someone who was branded with the letters S and L uh, don't ask me what they were for I forgot already okay. but and he does make reference in the text uh, when Hester is wearing her A. Some of the women are, you know, snide and making comments, whispering under their breath and how she should have been branded with the letter instead of having to just wear it affixed to her clothing. So branding was more of a thing. I wonder if Hawthorne chose to go with this because A, the story itself is dark enough as it is without that physical violence, but B, you can then take the letter off and he uses that throughout the story to kind of make a physical, it it acts as a symbol, right? Of her shame, of the sin, of the society's um, outward punishment towards her. 
but the fact that she can take it off then like and as her daughter the product of this illicit affair um, as her daughter pearl that's her name is growing up uh, she becomes very attached to the letter this is part of her mother's identity and if she ever takes it off she doesn't recognize her mother so i think he uses that in such a way um as like a literary tool, as a symbolic tool that branding, you know, it's too permanent, right? It wouldn't have worked the same. I appreciate that. It's a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit less aggressive than what they were doing back then. Also, like, I definitely like like the undertones of you can change, you can, if you did something wrong or if the society thinks you, you can better yourself, you can change, you can grow um, regardless of, of your state or situation. And that's what a lot of the book is about. Yeah. So as the story unfolds, Hester faces public humiliation, um, but remains resilient and independent throughout. She kind of moves to the outskirts of town, lives in a little cottage, raises her daughter, and that daughter serves as a constant reminder of this transgression in the Puritan community. So the big secret that kind of flows throughout the novel is the identity of Pearl's father. About halfway through the novel, though, they have this moment, right? The Reverend Arthur Dimsdale ascends the scaffold and he sees this meteor going through the sky. He says it looks like the letter A. It's always the letter A. The A is haunting him. She has to wear it, but he doesn't. He's standing in front of the Puritan community preaching all of these sermons, and yet he is just drenched in sin. God, it sounds so dramatic. Puritans are always drenched in sin. So dramatic. But this is where he kind of has like his moment of recognition for what you know, he has lived with for the last several years, but this throughout the entirety of the book is taking a toll on him. His mental turmoil manifests into physical sickness and Arthur Dimsdale is, it seems like he is nearing the end of his life. All the while, Hester's original husband, Roger Chillingworth, is seeking revenge. So he doesn't die. No, he did not actually die. Okay. I don't so, think I, did I know. Okay, keep going. So Roger Chillingworth, her original husband who she thought, she I mean, she thought that he was, it's not like she was trying to conduct this horrible affair. Well, well, he was gone. And she assumed, like many, that he had been lost at sea. Did they not cross together? No, they did not. Oh, she came, she oh, came, okay, okay. she came before him. Okay, okay, got She you. came before him. It's actually while she is receiving that letter A, she sees her husband Chillingworth in the crowd. So she knows he's there. The whole thing has secrets running throughout. So you've got Dimsdale with his secret that, you know, he is the father of Pearl. And then you have Chillingworth, who is actually living like in disguise. The only person that knows his original identity is Hester Prynne. Do we know why? Because he is, he feels shame that his wife uh, okay, sure. had an affair, had a child out of wedlock. So he, 
keeps his identity a mystery, starts operating as a doctor in town. And part of the, I mean, I think he had like training as a physician. Okay, um, you're like, I'm going to go be a physician. But his main goal, like his purpose now is to find out who Pearl's father is and seek his revenge, whether that's killing him publicly, making it known. Um, but that is what his life now rests on. So in the climactic scene at the very end when Arthur Dimsdale finally confesses to his sin and reveals that he is indeed the father of Pearl he dies just like he just dies so he so he gets up on so he, he delivers this epic sermon it's supposed to be one of the best of his careers he makes his way onto the scaffold where Hester Prynne got her original punishment and he confesses to the entire town that he is the father of Pearl and that he should have been standing alongside Hester seven years ago when this all started. But then he dies. It's really, it's a very weird, okay. it's like a tragedy. It really is a tragedy. It's called a romance, but it kind of is a tragedy. He calls this one a romance too. I, the House of Seven Gables? Yeah. Okay. We'll get to that. I guess you could say that the romance is actually found between Hester and her daughter, and then Hester's just triumph over the society in which she lives and her independence and being able to love herself, even though she deals with such a tarnished reputation. I don't know. I was really hoping that they would end up together. I know they don't. They did make plans to like escape to England. They were going to go take Pearl, escape the Puritan community, and raise her in a normal family setting. But he dies in Hester's arms on the scaffold after confessing. And then, because he was the object of Chillingworth's um, revenge, mm -hmm. Chillingworth then dies as a result. It's very symbolic, right? Like, you know, talk about people who lost a loved one and then they die shortly thereafter. Very much in I that like same he's vein. Also making an allegory to the the death of the crime or the idea, right? Like now everyone knows about the adulterer. So now that that is no longer now that's revealed, he that that sin has died and so too he dies. And his revenge has died. So and he, so too, he yeah. dies. Yep. Yeah. Fucking weirdo. Right? So obsessed with this that, you know, he's lost all of life's purpose mm -hmm. because of it. So then I guess we do get a little bit of a happy ending because Chillingworth dies. His fortune goes will, to her. Will end up going to Pearl. Okay. Um, and Hester Prynne will take her daughter to England just like they had promised um, Arthur Dimsdale. <laughs> and Pearl will go on to marry some English aristocrat and live a good life. And Hester will eventually return to that same town, to Boston. She'll return to her little cottage on the outskirts, and she will live out the rest of her days wearing the letter A. Still. Still wearing the letter A. And there's this idea that it transforms from representing adulteress or adultery to representing able. 
So to be able to be independent, to be, she ends up serving as a, a symbol of defying the Puritan norm and the constraints put on her by society. Appreciate that. She is, in fact, regarded as one of the first, if not the first, heroine in American literature, which I guess if you think about it, there are a lot of female protagonists during this time, but I think a lot of that may have had something to do with his mother. Uh, perhaps maybe he found inspiration in her raising the family on her own, found that type of independence and self-sufficiency. No, I can definitely see the comparisons there very easily made. And like the father, while well, he's lost his, his father was uh, not lost his, but died you know, on, on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe just sort of always have that imagined what if he was secretly here? Yeah. Or like his presence was always here. Mm-hmm. And like only we, kn- yeah, no, I can see a lot of, you can draw those, those comparisons very easily. So that's kind of like the bulk of the Scarlet Letter itself. The story of Hester Prynne um, taking place in 17th century Boston. Mm-hmm. But the book actually opens with a, eh, it's around 30 pages, an introduction that is not set in that time period, but is in fact in the perspective of the narrator in the modern day, which by modern day, I mean 1850 Salem. He loves the narration of a fucking narrator as I look at the House of Seven Gables. Yeah, you know, that I think that was just in back then, you know? Literature goes through waves through time. You see different perspectives, ways of writing. I feel like first person is very much what we normally deal with in today's fiction writing, but this not at all. It's um what is it? Third person omniscient. Yeah. The fact that I remember that. That I, that was very book reporty. I, I wouldn't have known that unless I because I, I Googled it for this. Oh, and so I, I remember. Was, <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's third person omniscient. And then you said it. And I was like, oh, no, I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> so I I had seen like multiple times that the Scarlet Letter isn't the Scarlet Letter without the Customs House. So the Customs House is what Jeff just referred to, the introduction. That's what yeah. it's called. It just opens with the Custom House. I would disagree with that statement. Okay, okay. I think it would stand alone just fine. Okay. Um, Although I will say that it does a very good job at establishing the setting. And what I mean by that is not the setting itself like 17th century Boston, but this idea that it's not 100% real, but also not 100% imaginary quote a neutral territory somewhere between the real world and fairyland literally calls it fairyland but just to kind of drive home that yes the puritans did act like this like they were puritanical they were judgmental they were unforgiving but at the same time we are completely making up this story so it is still technically fiction Mm -hmm. But no, I would definitely, I would say it, it stands okay alone. Okay. okay. Obviously, they love the book. The uh, the second edition sold out 
within a couple weeks, another 2,500 copy run. He did take some heat for that customs house introduction, though. So as I said, it is set in modern day, 1850, from his perspective, and he gives a pretty good description of not only the customs house, but Salem in general. And we had talked about um, on several occasions in the previous episode, his feelings on Salem. Mm -hmm. And I had made the statement that he didn't really like Salem very much. And I think the relationship is complicated. I think that would be a better way to say it. And I did want to read a short excerpt from the customs house when he is describing Salem, because it really gives us an idea of where his mind's at when it comes to this town. This old town of Salem, my native place, though I have dwelt much away from it, both in boyhood and maturer years, possesses, or did possess, a hold on my affections, the force of which I have never realized during my seasons of actual residence here. Indeed, so far as its physical aspect is concerned, with its flat, unvaried surface, covered chiefly with wooden houses, few or none of which pretend to architectural beauty, its irregularity, which is neither picturesque nor quaint, but only tame, its long, lazy street lounging wearisomely through the whole extent of the peninsula, with Gallows Hill and New Guinea at one end, and a view of the almshouse at the other. So obviously he's talking about Essex Street right there, which I just love. Such being the features of my native town, it would be quite as reasonable to form a sentimental attachment to a disarranged checkerboard. So he's basically calling Salem a disarranged checkerboard, but he has a tie to it deep down. Oh, that's that's for sure. You talking about like what in reference to your Both House of, of Seven Gables? Both of these. Like you don't get these books without his ties to the city yeah yeah i'd agree he continues and yet though invariably happiest elsewhere there is within me a feeling for old salem which in lack of a better phrase i must content to call affection so he doesn't hate salem Mm -hmm. he ends up going on to talk about his ancestors his um uh, William Hawthorne, Hathorne, the guy who came over originally. And then, of course, we got Judge John Hathorne, part of the witch trials. And he makes references to this. And he blatantly says, like, I feel this. You know, this is what ties me to this city. But it also is what makes me hate this city. But at the end of the day, he can't escape it because his roots run so deep. I'm now holding a copy of The House of Seven Gables. Is that is that also... That's literally what this book is about. Really? Yeah. Well, he does a really good job at like, you know, hammering this home in the introduction. Um, Okay, now I'm going to have to. Yeah, that's literally what this is about. One part of the introduction, though, that is totally inaccurate. He claims to have found a scarlet letter A. So he claims to have been in, you know, ruffling through old files or maybe the attic of the customs house. And he came upon, stumbled upon a manuscript and a piece of cloth shaped in the letter A. In this manuscript, it details the story of Hester Prynne 
and how she was forced to wear this letter A because of her transgressions. And supposedly the manuscript came from a previous worker of the customs house who was like insistent that her story be not forgotten. And this is where the inspiration for the entirety of the book came. But all that's not real. Like he didn't actually find a scarlet letter A that didn't happen. So it's just, it's very interesting, right? Like you had said, it wouldn't be the story it is without that introduction. Mm -hmm. And he does kind of set up this, it is a lead in to the actual story. It kind of gives this lore and legend atmosphere surrounding it. But I still think it would have been okay standalone. Okay. And I wonder how many people thought and for how long they thought that it was that, real, that, it was real yeah, that he probably. actually found a scarlet letter A yeah. in the customs house. He did take some heat for this uh, customs house introduction. People in Salem were not the happiest. <laughs> the Salem Register reported that the customs house was, quote, mean-spirited and unmanly. They accused Hawthorne of being a self-important bore, to air his grievances publicly. Wow. Hawthorne actually made a comment before he left Salem. Quote, if I escape from town without being tarred and feathered, I shall consider (laughs) it good luck. Well, good luck as he was not. Couple quick last things. The book would go on to be performed as a stage play in 1858 at a Barnum's American Museum. Okay. I think we mentioned. Yeah. Is it P.T. Barnum? Yep. P.T. Barnum. So this is just eight years after it's published. And then the first film adaptation came in 1908 as a short silent film, followed by other renditions in 1911, 1926, 34, 73, a TV miniseries in 79, another film in 1995 starring Demi Moore and Gary Oldman, which I have not seen, but that one from the previews I did watch looks way more centered on their affair and like what precedes Pearl's birth, but you know, maybe we'll give that one a whirl sometime. And then, of course, we have Easy A that came out in 2010. Very much um, a commentary on modern day, I'm going to use this word because you used it earlier, slut shaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, people looking at women as, you know, if your number's high, pff, but if you're a dude, you get a badge of honor for that. I'd say overall, Old English is not my thing. Okay. I don't enjoy this type of reading. I will be honest. I can appreciate it for its language and for its symbolism and for the strength of the female protagonists, especially during this time and written by a man. I'd probably give it an 8 out of 13 witch hats. Okay. Eight out of thirteen. That's that's more than fifty percent. That's like a solid sixty percent. That's pretty good. I like that. Okay. I feel like I should give it more yep. because of its reputation. Um, but it's really not my cup of tea. So I maybe I'm a little biased. I would probably I can t- I, I, I can relate because I we'll, we'll we'll talk. But yeah, that's that's what I give it. And can someone help me? Um I'm trying to remember what rent what version of the film we watched in school because we read this in high school and then we watched a movie version 
And I tried to go back and watch one, but I can't seem to find, I wonder if it was the mini series, which seems weird that they would put that up, but I cannot locate what, like, so if you are an English teacher and you teach the Scarlet Letter, let us know what version you show in class. Cause I, I want, if you, if you yeah. do, cause I really want to watch it. Cause I want to like go back and experience that. Cause that, I think I remember that more than I do reading the actual book. I'd say it's probably the mini. I don't remember watching it in school. I'd say it's probably the mini series that seems to fit what, from what you've just said. Yeah. If anyone's got any ideas, let us know, sh- shoot us an email. But yeah, that is the Scarlet Letter, a tale of skin, skin. (laughs) 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 a tale of sin, of shame, of redemption, of strength, and growth. Well, thank you, Sarah. No, thank you, Jeffrey. Solid, like... No. <laughs> a, that was a, a horrible book report. Solid A. <laughs> oh, I like that. You gonna give me anything but an A? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was an easy A. No. <laughs> you like, calling me easy? I can't. It's it's a joke. Okay. All right. So hit me with the House of the Seven Gables, which Ooh. full disclosure to everyone listening, I have never read. I, I said I was gonna read it too. But I didn't read it. I would. I really liked it. Uh, I had a lot of problems with it throughout. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the prose is magnificent and mind-numbing. <laughs> it is. Like, there are times when, when, when in his writing, you're like, I get it description of the house of the trees of the, the there's a whole train scene and and how they feel and the people on the train and, and like you really get it but then sometimes you're like I don't need I don't I don't need all of that I those they are very relevant to the story and, and very irrelevant to the story but so the, the the train scene he's talking about how the 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 train gives you life and you're traveling and the human cyclic nature of progression and technology and and how we keep moving forward as the train is moving and how mm-hmm. we keep growing and how the future will look with more transportation and, and how we will better be able to to bring our worlds together and he's talking about all the people on the train and the people with tickets and their hats for the long journeys and the young boys talking to the young girls and they're playing this game of ball all the while the countryside is whipping past at these speeds that are unimaginable and the whole thing and you're like but all of that is a setup for like a five-minute conversation. But then when they're having the five-minute conversation, you know exactly where they are and exactly how the feel of that moment is, which is like, it really helps, but also you're like, you could have, you didn't, you didn't. And it is, the whole book is like that. So there are times I'm like, I'm just, I'm just done. And full admittance is I couldn't read it. I tried. Yeah, we both did audiobooks yeah. <laughs> for this because we couldn't make it through. Yeah. Um, there were times when I followed along uh, in the book with the audiobook, and I was like, and I was, that was good. Uh, but it was, it was a lot. Um, so audiobooks are great. YouTube is great. You can just go, you don't even need an Audible account. No, uh, I found mine on Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're like, hey, I want to get into this and, and you feel like 
getting through some of these proses and some of these words um, because it does use some dated language, um, some words that I w wasn't familiar with. Um, check out the audiobooks and, and, and those really help. Uh, that would also, I think, be one of the reasons that I did enjoy it is because I wasn't struggling through the, the, the reading of the literature is I was able to, not passively. But, but just listen. Just listen and enjoy the conversation. Um, so that really helped. Um, but anyway, uh, House of Seven Gables is uh, his sort of secondary culminal work, uh, at least just a couple years later in 1851. Remember, he writes this when he's out in Lenox. So he's out in the western part of Massachusetts. Um, and I think that's, that's important because it's not here in Salem. So he is, as we so often see in his writings, it is a reflection of something that he no longer has not necessarily you know yeah it's it's like after the fact yeah it's he's clearly inspired by a thing uh but he rarely writes about the thing in the moment he writes about it later on um and that's what he's writing about here is god even the customs house he wasn't in there anymore yeah, it was after yeah. he had left yeah or was fired <laughs> after after left this position <laughs> um so obviously it's inspired by that house. Uh, but it's not set in Salem. I mean, it is set in Salem, but he doesn't expressly ever say that it's Salem. He sort of says a town in Essex. Oh. Um, yeah. So he sort of expressly doesn't say it's Salem. Uh, but everyone also knows that it is Salem, right? Like he's talking about the House of Seven Gables. Um, he's talking about these things. He's talking and he talks about witch trials and he talks about... Uh, these sorts of things. So while he doesn't name Salem, he is from Salem and uh, deeply roots that in it, which I think isn't is obviously intentional, but I think he does it so that, you know, us dear readers aren't expressly tied to Salem. It doesn't have to be this one place in this one. It can be different. It can be more. It can be bigger. It goes back to how he was depicting or how he was setting up the story of the Scarlet Letter in the mm. Customs House. This fairy, like this mix between reality and fairy-like. Yeah. You know, it's this weird limbo that's not quite real. Right. But You're like, all you had to do was from Salem. Unreal. doesn't. So it makes it, I think, like more accessible. Yeah. So the story, and, and so often... Uh, there's two ways to describe like what a story is about. And there's like the plot, right? This is what it's about. And the other thing is like, what is, what is this story? And this story is about generational trauma. And you, if you know Hawthorne and you understand his life and how he lived and where he's from and what his name is, you're like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Um, but also any of us who have experienced any sort of generational trauma, that's what this is about. And it's, and I, I was saying this to you earlier and I sort of cut myself off so I could say it, you know, on recording. I think one of the reasons I really like it is because I live in Salem. I talk about Salem. I talk about the Puritans. I, uh, you know, he has this conversation, um, and they're about, you know, the house, and I know the house he's talking about. I've been to the house, the elm trees, the streets, Salem. He talks about the witch trials. There's conversations about witches. There's conversations about judges. There's conversations about all these different things. And I feel like this book would hit very different if I lived 
in California or Texas or France, right? You know, if you're not living in, he makes Salem references. He talks about Gibraltar's. He talks about Daniel Webster. He talks about all the, and I'm like, I'm so familiar with all these topics that I really enjoyed it. It's like Easter eggs. Yeah. Would someone who is not enjoyed as much and Honestly, I think no. So like when you were giving the rating, I would give this a much higher rating because of my personal attachment vice how the story is actually told. But the story is also told phenomenally well. The story is just ridiculous. Is it ridiculous? <laughs> Why? What makes it ridiculous? Okay, so it's it's the story of um, Hepzibah Pynchon. Like, what a name. Uh, so Hepzibah is a Bible character name. Uh, and... She's this elderly woman, and he uses her as a mold for the elderly, but of age and what age can do, and how you're the twilight. And, you're, and she's she's always described as scowling and angry, and she's not mean ever, but she has a very negative. She doesn't greet the day brightly. She's always looking at things in 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 the negative. Um, and her husband, sorry, her brother's recently out of jail, uh, which isn't quite expressly made clear. That's the other thing. It's like I had to go, I read like all what this book was about before I listened. So uh-huh. that gave me a better on going through and reading. I was like, you like took you eight pages to gloss <laughs> over <laughs> who Clifford is. Uh-huh. At first I thought it was a ghost because there's a ghost, right? I thought, and it wasn't. He was real, but he comes through the doorway faded, seeming to fade in and out of nothingness. Was he, he looked around unfamiliar with this place, an, a voice that was barely audible. And he'd just been released from jail for 30 years. So he was like reacclimating to being back in his home, right? Which is the narrative. But it's also then used as like, sure, he's, he is a ghost in this place. <laughs> so you're like, okay, dude. Just tell me if he's real or not. Right. I had to be like, is Clifford Pynchon? Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. He's he's real. He's a live person. Um, and then there's Phoebe Pynchon, and she is young. She's a family member from the country. And I, I don't, I sort of got the feel that she's like teenager, like 16 maybe. Um, but I think me, there's a little romance. So maybe a little older, maybe 20, I'm not sure. But she is young and she is smiling and she is cheerful and she is bubbly and she is friendly and she is kind. So she is like the direct opposite of of Hespa and she helps Clifford sort of refined, you know, when you have that young laugh and that young carefree and that, you know, mm-hmm. that brings light. So they're like these opposites like this is what we all should be and how we should we should act and how those carefree burdens of life help us better but at these the the hespa as she's old life has taken its toll and worn on her and it's not only life but it is the burden of her family and this is what the whole book is about yeah <laughs> really so then we introduce a few more characters. Uh, there's Alice Pynchon. She's a ghost, actually. Uh, and she's lost her life before. Uh, and then we have the issues with Judge Pynchon. And Judge Pynchon looks uh, uh, very much um, like his ancestor, Colonel Pynchon. Colonel Pynchon had accused 
Mr. Mall, Matthew Mall of, uh, sorry, had he accused? Was he the one who made the accusation? He might have been, I can't remember. Mall dies in the witch trials. And Pynchon builds the House Seven Gables on the land that Mall had had. Oh. So Mall curses Pynchon on the gallows by saying... Ooh, is it the God will give you blood to drink line? God will give you blood to drink. So he took Sarah Good's line uh-huh. and transplanted it onto this story. Yep. Interesting. Onto Maul. And, and forgive me, Maul was um, first name? Matthew Maul. Matthew Maul. So it was a dude. Yeah. So Matthew Maul is a witch, well, you know, accused of witch uh, or witchcraft. Uh, and he curses Colonel Pynchon. Colonel Pynchon dies choking on his own, you know, they're at a big party and there's blood on his doublet and there's blood on his mouth and he ends up dying in the House of Seven Gables that he had built on the land that he had taken from Maul. So by the way, I think that land grab conversation that we so often have to dispel, I think... Comes directly from this? I think so, yeah. There is still a, a plot of land, a, a, a small... Um, spring on the gables property uh that's supposed to be cursed water you know because the malls you know lake and water right um so that's the family history that the whole land that their house is on is stolen land from this person who is now we know better not a witch Mm -hmm. and the family has to constantly deal with that and that as you go through living as a pension, that burden becomes more and more on you. And the young girl, while she has the last name pension, she's not a pension. She's not from the pension house. She didn't grow up on the pension street under the shade of the pension elm. So she is unaware of that burden. And then we have Judge Pynchon, who, like I said, looks like his ancestor, and he's the bad guy. Um, and as it turns out, you don't find this out till like, here like the last like 20 pages um is that uh clifford spent 30 years in jail because his uncle the father of the judge had died and the judge had framed clifford for the murder (gasps) so he was in jail because of his own family yeah for 30 years yeah so he gets out he gets back into this old house and the judge is still around. The judge made has he's well, he's wealthy, velvet, lace, etc. Um, but he keeps talking to Clifford. He wants oh Clifford this and Clifford that and Clifford, where's the document? Where's the thing? And it all comes back to the land and money issue because as we find out, like again within the last like ten pages, is that there is a plot of land up in Maine that the Pynchon family should have had, and the deed to that land goes missing after the judge died a century before. Sorry, 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 sorry. After the colonel dies a century before. So the judge is now after that document, which he thinks Clifford knows where it is. Turns out he does. He'd forgotten. He'd seen it in passing, rifling through some stuff, and he's like, oh, right. It was behind a picture frame. But the land was inv- uh, unable to be used anyway. The document was unfinished. But the whole time, the judge is rifling through his father's stuff to look for this 
piece of land to make him more wealthy. Mm-hmm. And he frames his cousin for the murder of his father because of this land to make him more wealthy. And the cousin it doesn't matter to him and he just wants to live his life. So how does it end? They leave the house. Everyone? The judge had died. Is the curse broken? Maybe. The judge dies. Uh, Clifford ends up inheriting all the money. Okay, cool. At least there's that. So he takes his sister, Hespa, and his niece, and they leave the house. There's a great line about how they left the house as though to run an uh, without a care. With They left the house with as much care as though they were to run an errand and return that evening. I love that. Yeah. So I just got up and left. Yeah. Where's the romance come in? <laughs> so there is a small romance, uh, like an actual <laughs> romance, between um, uh, uh, Phoebe and a gentleman by the name of Holgrave. Okay. Um, Holgrave is a daguerreotypist. Oh, I a, love that. He's a photographer. Back in the day. Right. Um, and it turns out that he is a descendant of Maul. Oh, so the fact that, oh my God, it's like, it's like holes. (laughs) We're like the descendants of the original curse people get together and break the curse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's not really prominent in the tale. That's not the romance. The romance is the romanticizing of our past. Oh, that's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> the the, okay. the love and the obsession we have with what has come before. And so I, I have a few a few quotes here. Um, there's a preface. It's not a preface. It's the first chapter. And what he does is he talks all about what happened in the 1600s. He talks about Maul and the Pynchon family and the accusation and the house and the, and the property. So you know all that before going in, which I really appreciated. There's, uh, <laughs> you're going to appreciate this. Old Matthew Mall, in a word, was executed for the crimes of witchcraft. He was one of the martyrs in that terrible delusion, which should teach us, among its other morals, that the influential classes, those who take upon themselves to be leaders of the people, are fully liable to all the passionate error that has ever characterized the maddest mob. Clergymen, judges, Statesmen, the wisest, calmest, holiest persons of their day, stood in the inner circle about the gallows, loudest to applaud the works of blood, latest to confess themselves miserably deceived. Love that. (laughs) Love that. (laughs) He, you know, I do wonder how much it weighed on him for real. I think a lot. Like I, I it think it must have, because it shows so much in his writing. It that's literally uh, yeah no like like a lot. Um, so the pension I think is obviously an allegory for the Hawthorne. Yeah, which I mean I guess and we brought this up in the last episode too. It is only his great great grandfather. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or am I am I a, a one great one, over? Two, no three. Because he is the great great grandson. Yeah. So that would be great great grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're looking at, he was born, he was born 110 years after the witch trials. Like, that's not that long. That is recent memory, Mm -hmm. especially for them. For sure. And to live and walk the same streets 
and to know that your family had a major hand in it and the fact that they are one of the names that will not be forgotten because of it. Oh no, he, you, after reading this, I was like, oh man, he, he, generational trauma, literally. And I know that you are not a big fan of the idea that he added the W to like, I'm a little more of a fan. Distance himself, but imagine growing up. Hathorne this, Hathorne. Yeah, and knowing that your ancestor was going to be remembered for the foreseeable future because of this atrocity. Mm -hmm. Knowing that that name would carry on beyond your death. It is less surprising to me that he would want to make sure that this was distinct enough with that W that he was reclaiming that name, trying to seek out some type of justice through his works. I'm gonna, you're gonna enjoy. It. I've got a larger. Hold on, get get to a few. There's. Let me see. Let me hear. So when I talk about like the prose, uh-huh. there's this point in which he described Clifford, the pale, gray, childish aged melancholy yet often simply cheerful and sometimes delicately intelligent aspect of clifford peering from behind the faded crimson curtain that's a lot that's a lot but it describe just one person (laughs) in one singular moment but it gives it gives you so much but i didn't i didn't need all of that which like i appreciate it right pale gray childish aged melancholy often simply cheerful sometimes you're like oh my god just pick three. Just <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I'm talking about, the prose. That's like a lot of what we see. And sometimes it goes on for pages. Um, so the house is also like a th- It's not real. It's not live, right? It's not like a living thing. But they oftentimes, the house stands as a physical representation of their family, of the street, of their job, of their inheritance. Uh, oftentimes it is dusky, it is gloomy, it is aged, it is moldy, it is old, it is, you know, so they keep that where they're in this house, they're bound to this house, they're, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not like a spooky thing, but it's like, it, it it's a def- definitive thing. But it ties into who they are. <clears throat> they shrank back into the dusky passageway and closed the door. But going up the staircase again, they found the whole interior of the house tenfold more dismal, and the air closer and heavier. For the glimpse of breath of freedom for which they had just snatched, they could not flee. Their jailer had but left the door ajar in mockery, and stood behind it to watch them stealing out at the threshold. They felt its pitless grip upon them. For what other dungeon is so dark as one's own heart? What jailer so inexorable as oneself? Mm. <laughs> Deep. <laughs> it's like, oh, I get it. You know, yourself blame, self act. You know, it's me. It's my own faults. You know, who else to blame? You know, et cetera. And just eats away at you. Very tormented. Well, I mean, my goodness. So, I don't know how. This is like a page and a half. Oh my gosh! Don't read the full page and a half. You can cut. I don't know where to begin with this. Um, so this is Holgrave talking uh, to Phoebe. And I'm not, we don't know yet that Holgrave is a descendant of Maul. So he is railing on the past. So he's a daguerreotypist. He's a photographer, which also adds into the, he's taking pictures to remember the history where in which his history is the sort of history of, you know, whatever. Yeah. So that's a whole nother allegory. Cool. 
but he's talking to Phoebe and he's like the past, fuck the past, fuck, not, you know, whatever. But shall we never get rid of the past? He cried, keeping up the earnest tone of his pre- uh, preceding conversation. It lies upon the present like a giant's dead body. In fact, the case is just as if a young giant were compelled to waste all its strength in caring about the corpse of the old giant, his grandfather, who died a long while ago and only needs to be decidedly buried. Just think a moment, and it will startle you to see what slaves we are to bygone times, to death, if we give the matter the right word. And Phoebe responds, but I do not see it. He says, for example, then, a dead man, if he happened to have made a will, disposes of the wealth no longer his own, or if he dies with it, it is distributed in accordance with the notion of men much longer dead than he. A dead man sits on all our judgment seats, and living judges do but search out and repeat his decisions. We read dead men's books, we laugh at dead men's jokes, we cry at dead men's pathos. We are sick of dead men's diseases, physical and moral, and die of the same remedies with which dead doctors killed their patients. We worship the living deity according to dead men's forms and creeds. What we seek to do of our own free motion, the dead men's icy hand obstructs us. Turn our eyes to what point we may. A dead man's white, imaginable face encourages them and freezes our very heart. And we must be dead ourselves before we can have our proper influence on the world, which will then be no longer our world, but the world of another generation, with which we shall have no shadow of a right to interfere. I ought to have said, too, that we live in dead men's houses, for as instance, in this house of the Seven Gables. Wow, I love that. Yeah, and it, it goes on. He keeps talking about, um, I doubt whether even our public edifices, our capital, state houses, courthouses, city halls ought to be built of such permanent materials. It would be better that they should crumble to ruin in 20 years or thereabouts as a hint to people to examine and reform the institutions with which they symbolize. Wow. It's like two or three like Trying to escape, you know, an antiquated understanding of the present yeah. because all we do is rely on dead men, the people of the past to show us the way, which if you think about it <laughs> is really stupid. I'm like sitting here thinking about the modern world and being like and how we still oh my 170 years later. Yeah. Wow. Still ascribe to dead men's beliefs. We can't change the world because of dead men's whatever's. Oh, wow. That yeah. is prophetic. That's probably why his writings are, are so are timeless. So timeless yeah. Because they can, st- they, he was wise in his understanding of human nature mm-hmm. and humans are predictable. So we keep repeating the same patterns over and over again. It's easy to transplant these stories onto modern day. Well, that's literally what he then goes on and says. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Holgrave then turns around and goes, have you... Uh, by the by, did you hear the story of Maul, the wizard, and what happened between him and your immeasurably great-grandfather? Phoebe says, yes, I heard it from my father, etc., right, Mr. Holgrave? Uh, and he says, I believe it, not as a superstition, but as a proved unquestionable facts as exemplifying a theory. And what he believes isn't necessarily the f- fact that uh, Matthew cursed... Uh, Sorry, that Matthew Maul, the witch, cursed Colonel Pynchon, mm-hmm. but that the story has affected 
the next three generations of those families because the Maul family is destitute. They have no money. They were accused of being a witch. Their family lives in squalor. And yet the colonel who wins and takes the land, regardless of whether the curse and the ghost are real, one family has you know, three generations ascribed. The judge was going to be appointed the governor. He was he was rich. He was lavish. And the other ones are, you know, living in near destitution because of those decisions. And a false accusation. Yeah. Wow. It's So I was going to ask if he knew the story and how their families were connected. But you don't find out as a reader until he reveals it? Yes. Uh, towards the very end. So Holgrave plays a major role. Him and Phoebe have a little... You know, does she carry him up a mountain and feed him <laughs> no water, no. drink from the spring? Um, it's so holes. I can't unsee that. Yeah, but it's it's really fascinating. And and like I said, I think one of the reasons that I like it so much is because I'm like, I live in Salem. I see the glitter. I the stories I, I, I see. All right, it makes me want to read it now. (laughs) Throughout the town and how, you know, you have people living on Chestnut Street and you have people living at the point because of generations of decisions that were made and by dead men. Uh huh. Great commentary (laughs) on uh, like dispersion of wealth. Yeah, yeah. And and you can really see how Hawthorne knew and like you were saying, he must have felt that. And you're like, he felt that. And he knew that and, you know, he had to deal with his name and who he was and what his great grand great great grandfather had done. And you can really see it outlined in, in all this and how they try, how the aged, you know, that just wears on you and you become just another creature within the system. Whereas with this young Phoebe, she's young, she's new, she doesn't understand. She comes, she brings new light, new life. And so you don't have to be bound to to that thing that binds you. You can be new, you can be fresh, you can be happy. Yeah, it was good. Do you wonder if um, he based the Phoebe character off of anyone in his life? I don't think so. I don't know. I didn't see too... I'm, I know we're going to save his wife, Sophia, yeah, for her yeah. own episode. Um. I just wonder if, like, maybe she had a little bit of that light in her and that's where he drew from. Or it could be. Just out of curiosity. I, w- I wouldn't argue against that. I didn't expressly see that, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I wouldn't argue uh, against that. Yeah, it makes me want to read it. What yeah. would you rate it? I don't know. Come on. So, like... Out of 13. Again, I know that I liked the book because of my... Uh, uh, familiarity with Salem because of my familiarity with the trials. When you're taught, when I read God will give you blood to drink and I'm like, Oh, he took that from right. Sarah. Good. You can pick up on the references that maybe an average person wouldn't. Right. So like he took that from Sarah. Good gave it to Matthew mall and Matthew mall cursed Colonel Pynchon, who is the grand um, grand great grandfather of the judge in the books where in which Reverend noise in the minister. So we, it's like, I see, how those lines are all connected talks about Gibraltar's. He talks, there's a line he, he mentioned. I can't, I missed it. Um, Daniel just, Webster, just for those who are wondering, you oh. can get Gibraltar candies at yield pepper company across the street from the house. Seven Gables, arguably the oldest candy ever produced in the country. Yes. The Gibraltar. Yeah. It's okay. No, I mean, you can it, go right, buy it now. Right. Like it's fine. Yeah. But the, but just like, 
the it Easter being eggs. in there. Yeah. Is, I love that they are like Easter there eggs. Are. And it was written 170 years ago. And it's still relevant. Yeah. So it's like, oh, this is cool. I like this. This is fun. I understand all this. Is, like I said, someone not from around here who is, I don't know. I say give it a read. It was like 11 out of 13. I was going to guess that you'd give it a 10. Yeah. So that's pretty good. Yeah. That's good. Um, the modern, the relevance, that whole line about the, the, the dead men. It speaks to his wisdom. It speaks to our modern day. That too. And, and how we still struggle for change and for the, the, it were better that they should crumble to ruin once in 20 years or thereabouts as a hint to the people to examine into and reform the institutions which, which they symbolize. As we sit here and just try to do better for the world and for the people who are going to come after us and stop clinging to ancient puritanical beliefs. Written in 1850. Like, can, can we get our act together yet? So very much enjoyed House of Seven Gables. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I got. Got nice. any questions? <laughs> nice. I think, uh, I don't know if I have any questions, but I definitely think I might read it. Yeah, yeah. Go get myself some Gibraltar candies, throw it in the AirPods, and just walk down you also get some Derby Street. Gingerbread. Is there gingerbread references? Yes. Uh, Jim Crow cookies. What? That's what they were called? Well, uh, so obviously the, the Jim Crow is the stereotypical dancing enslaved black man, right? But they were making Jim Crow cookies. So it seems to be, as far as I can tell, gingerbread. Uh, I think it's gingerbread. Uh, and there's a little orphan who comes up and, and, and sees one in the window of the shop and gets one and, uh, as well, gives it to him for free and he comes back for another one and she makes him pay for it and that's the first money she's made uh, but then he comes back for all sorts of other cookies uh, a roving menagerie of all this the, there's giraffes and elephants and he just this little like street urchin just comes he's the best customer of the shop he comes back <laughs> every day with a penny uh, to get some other cookie or whatnot um to the shop, do you mean the shop like in the house seven gables? Yeah, yeah like yeah. they are opera so that's why so when I was in when I was doing the tour, they added the penny shop yes. because of yes. the book. Yes. That's so cool. So, sorry. Uh, Hepzibah Pynchon is elderly, and she seems as though uh, she has fallen on hard times or maybe just the general generational wealth on her end of the family has dried up. Uh, her cousin, the judge, still has you know he a phenomenal amount of a country and the farm and the in the you know whatever else mm -hmm. um but she refuses to take any money from him and so now as an elderly woman she has to make for the first time in her life her own money mm -hmm. and that's why she opens up the penny shop at the house of seven gables um and the the first cuss and she struggles with in the beginning and there's there's also that notion of shame Right, like that she's come from this prosperous family, and, and now, now she she's has to work behind the counter. Um, she's always grumpy about it, but yet Phoebe comes in, all sunshine and rainbows, and she's happy to work, mm -hmm. and she doesn't mind. And you know, she doesn't have the stigma of the the generational trauma. You know, oh, I'm rich and I'm gentry. Why should I work the counter? 
uh, Phoebe's like, whatever, I get to stand here. I get to talk to people all day. I get to have fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I love working and I love interacting with the, with the community. And she sees it as like a rewarding thing and people start to, you know, she's like a, and then, so we can see the difference there. Yeah. Yeah. So the penny shop comes because, uh, Hepzibah, uh, has to now make her own ways. It's cool to like, see if, if nothing else, I do want to read the book to really connect more with the house itself because the tour is so great. You get to go up the secret staircase. You get to see the penny shop in the house itself. So it's kind of cool to read where that inspiration came from and also be inside the place that inspired the book in the first place. Weird. Again, it's that weird, like cyclical relationship. Right. Right. I missed (laughs) as you like the house. We'll finish with this. Halfway down a by street of one of our New England towns stands a rusty wooden house with seven acutely peaked gables facing towards various points in the compass. A huge clustered chimney in the midst. That's how it opens. I love it. <laughs> I'll let you borrow it or listen to the audiobook. I think I'm going to go with the audiobook. Yeah, yeah, I would. There's. <laughs> There's times, there's times. I really appreciate the pros, but like, anyway, yeah. So that was two of Hawthorne's best works. Well then. I think we did an okay job. Yeah, yeah. Good book reports. Fun uh, delve into uh, some of his more personal stuff, but there you go. And kind of explore his connections to the city Mm -hmm. in the process. Yeah, I think it was good. There we go. I am I'm good to wrap up this section of Hawthorne. Only thing left is the Peabody sisters. Yes. Stand on their own. So we'll be doing that later in the year. Yeah. Yeah, it'll come in a couple months, I think. Yeah. But uh, we got a great interview coming to you next week. So stay oh. tuned for that. And also look out for more information dropping about our second live show. Uh, should be coming to your ear holes soon. As always, thanks for listening. See you later.